We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Our church exists to embrace, embody, and spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world in our words, our deeds, and the way we live life in community for personal, social, cultural renewal. Now, we've spent the last nine weeks walking step by step through the various components of that vision. But we all know that it's just that. It's just a vision, right? I mean, it's just a goal. It's a dream. This is what God has put in our heart. Um, this dream of what a church can be and what a church is to do. Now, tonight we're beginning a new series, and for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about five general areas of ministry that our church is going to focus on in order to turn that dream into reality. Now, look on the back inside cover of your worship guide. Over there on the left of it, there's this thing that says, Our Task. Um, These are the five ministry fronts that we're going to pursue as a church in order to try to turn our goal into reality. Um, Five of them. Worship and evangelism, that's one. Mercy and justice. Church planting. Community formation. And faith and work. This is where our church is going to work, and it also tells you where our church is not going to work, what we're not going to concern ourselves with. So each week, for the next five weeks, we're going to tackle a different ministry front, and tonight, it's faith and work. We're going to talk about what does it mean to apply your faith to your job, to your work. Now, remember where our vision statement ends. The last phrase of it, that we exist for personal, social, and cultural renewal. If we are going to take that seriously, if we as a church are going to seriously devote ourselves to cultural renewal, then we must be a group of people who apply the gospel to our lives as individuals and to our relationships, but also we must apply the gospel to our profession. Whether you're a student in school or a homemaker or a banker or a professional teacher dude, whatever your vocation is, if we're going to take seriously cultural renewal, we've got to know what it means to apply the gospel to our profession. So my goal for tonight is for us to see that the Christian view of work is three things. It's unique, it's life-changing, and it has within it the potential for real, deep, profound cultural renewal. Okay, now, there are three ways that when the Bible talks about work, and, and here, students, just so you know, you work. Your work is school. Okay, If a child is not in school, Sloan, his work is play. All humans have work. Whatever your work is, the Bible has three distinctive 
um, kind of principles or ideas about work. There are three things about the Christian view of work that set it apart um, from all other views of work. And the first is this. You were made to work. Genesis 1.28. This is what Gates read to us. God said to the humans, right after he made mankind, he looks and he says what? Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing on the earth. This is an assignment to work. We are, as humans, responsible to exercise our powers and abilities to work. That's what it will take to create and to cultivate and to develop and reshape the world that we find before us. Work, it's to take the world that's given to you and to make something of it. Now, what a child does, you need to know, a child's work is play. And what a child is doing in that moment is a child is taking the world and he's doing something with it so that he can learn. So that he can learn about the laws of gravity, for example, right? This is a child's work. Or if you're a banker, right? You're taking funds and you're doing something with them in order to contribute to society, hopefully flourishing. Um, Right now we're seeing that when banking gets that wrong, it has a catastrophic effect. We're made to work. Now, when we go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 is absolutely clear on this. God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden in order to work it and to keep it. That's our nature. We were made for the purpose of work. Now, by the way, this is why when somebody's laid off and they're out of work, it is so dehumanizing. It, it robs a person of their, their very kind of humanness. Now, here in America, when it comes to work, there are two kind of big streams of influence. Marx, Carl, as some of you might call him, and Sigmund Freud. The Marxian approach to work plays out this way. The kind of whole Marx view of work, you see it in our society when you meet someone who tries to find their fulfillment in their job. You perform and you get recognition from your peers or your superiors and you get hooked on this stimulation and you can't stop working and and you can't think of anything that you'd rather do and retirement in your mind is is just another form of death and and if it wasn't for enforced relaxation what we call weekends then these people burn out in just a couple of years now that's the marxian view of work now then there's the freudian view of work And this person doesn't seek fulfillment on the job. This person seeks fulfillment off the job. We work to make a living. Work is only good because it makes other things possible. I get a paycheck, and with the paycheck, I get the pleasures of life. Whatever those are for you. A nice house, an extra house, a nice car, vacation, fine wine, early retirement. You just fill in the blank. But Genesis chapters 1 and 2 present an entirely different view. We were made to work. Now, this leads us to the second way that the Christian view of work is distinctive. We were made to work, and therefore work does bring us a measure of fulfillment, sort of like Marx was getting at. But, and this is where the Christian view of work is a deep challenge to Marxism. As Christians, the Bible teaches us that the purpose of work is not self-fulfillment. The purpose of work 
is to help your neighbor. Now that, that's pretty revolutionary. I mean, as far as Mark's revolutions go. That the purpose of a student going to school or, or of a mom being a housewife, the purpose of work is to help your neighbor. Listen to Ephesians 4.28. We didn't have it read, but let me read it to you. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now this was written to a culture, this is the New Testament, it was written to a culture deep, deeply kind of sunk down into the Greek view of reality. And the Greek view was that if you're really, really fortunate, you don't have to work. There were some Greek cities where it was illegal to work. No citizen was allowed to work. The kind of Greek idea was that what it means to be a great person is to be a person who lives the life of the mind, either in contemplation or in politics. Do you see how Paul, when he writes this, he is taking that worldview head on. And behind this ver verse, there's a, there's, there is a view that is fundamentally opposed not only to the Greek view of work, but to the American approach too. It's, and what Paul is saying is that the purpose of work is that work is a form of mutual service. Now, the problem we have as Americans is that the habit of thinking about work as something you do in order to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about work in terms of gracious service to your neighbor. But look, what I'm saying to you, if, if I was a preacher in order to make money, if I was doing this and you knew that and you could see that, you would think things about You would feel like I was... Mixed up, right? And what I'm saying to you is that the same criteria you have for me in this job is the same criteria for you in your job. The purpose of work is to serve. And it is just as unnatural for a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a businessman, if for him to say, make the purpose of his work to be his own kind of accumulation of things, that is just as out of the the kind of way of things as it is for a preacher to turn ministry into a means to financial improvement. Work is our contribution to the good of the community. It is not merely a means to my own advancement. So let me give you a good definition of work. This is from the Bible, a biblical perspective. It's this. Work is the genuine service to others through the responsible use of your own talents and abilities. Work is an act of generous and gracious and genuine service to others through the responsible use of your own talents and abilities. Now, one more thing about the Christian view of work that makes it radical in today's world. Think about the passage that Korah read to us from Proverbs 31. This very famous poem of this working wife and mother that comes at the end of a book 
dedicated to teaching us what a life lived completely centered on God, what that kind of life looks like. That's the purpose of Proverbs. It says in chapter 1, it says in chapter 9, it says at the end of the book that the purpose of this book is to show us what a life entirely devoted to God looks like. Now, at the time when this book was written, the fully devoted life was called, that was a person who they would say feared God. Now, in our day, we would use a different phrase. We might say Robert Brandon. Now, he's sold out, or he's entirely dedicated, or his whole life is centered around God. The way they said that, their kind of code word for that, was he fears God. That was a, that was a suitcase. It, you packed a whole world of meaning into that phrase, and it meant his life is entirely, 100% dedicated to the service of God. So when it says in verse 30, this woman, right, she fears the Lord. What does that indicate about her life? It says this woman is the paradigm. She is the example par excellence. She is the the way we're going to finish this book trying to teach you what the completely dedicated life looks like. We're going to give you a picture of the completely dedicated person. But here's my question for you. What is it about her life that indicates religious devotion? I mean, in verse 13, she's sewing. In verse 14, she's gathering food. In 15, she's getting up while it's still dark and everybody else is sleeping because she's got to make a fire to cook and all that stuff. In verse 16, she's buying a field and planting a vineyard. In verse 18, she's discerning the difference between really high-quality merchandise and, and schlep. In verse 20, she's helping the poor. In verses 21 and 22 and 24, she's got very expensive taste. We could go on and on. What is it about this picture of this woman that justifies her epithet being she fears the Lord? It's this. The book of Proverbs is dedicated to shattering the notion that some work is religious and some is not. Some work is holy and some is profane. Some work is valuable more than other work. And that's the third distinctive of the Christian view of work. There is no legitimate job that is more valuable than any other job. We live in a society that creates hierarchies and rewards, right? But the Christian view of work is that there is no legitimate job more valuable than any other job. So Sloan's job of playing is just as valuable as the presidency in the eyes of God. And for me to obstruct that is just as wrong as obstructing a president or a doctor or a lawyer or an architect. Luther put it this way, God and the angels smile when a man changes a diaper. I think because they know what's going to come next, right? (laughs) William Tyndale said it like this. He said, if our desire is to please God, well, then pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word, it's all the same. William Perkins wrote, the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as is the action of a judge in giving a sentence or a magistrate in ruling 
or a minister in preaching. That's what I'm saying. That's the third kind of radical and distinctive element of the Christian view of work, that there are no hierarchies. Now, we've just raced through the kind of basic view of work we get from Scripture. And, and there are a lot of loose ends I've, I've left dangling. Like, what do you do if you're in a job that doesn't fit you or if you make a lot of money? You know, what do you do then with your extra money? If the purpose of work is to serve your neighbor, what does that mean for wealth? There's, there's a lot of complicated issues here. But tonight, what I want to spend the remainder of the sermon doing is this. I want to offer you three ways that you can build off of a theology of work and integrate your faith and your work, okay? Number one, if all of that is true, and I believe that it is, it's, it's, I believe it's the scriptural teaching on work. The number one, if you want to apply your faith to your work, the first thing you have to do is you have to learn to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work. See, my job as a parent right now is to teach my children how to encounter God in their play. It's the same job I have, which is to offer myself to God through my vocation. Or Emily as an architect, to offer and to encounter God, to serve God as she's architecting. What I'm saying is that when you commit yourself to the view that all legitimate work matters equally to God, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're stepping into a world where you can begin to see that your job is God's invitation for you to join Him in His job. In creating us for the purpose of work, God is calling us to himself. He's inviting us into communion with him as a co-worker in his vineyard of creation. God is at work in this world. He's shaping it and organizing it and creating and cultivating and forming and ordering and maintaining. And when you are offered work, you are offered partnership with God in that great job that he has with his creation. You see, you can read Proverbs 31 in one of two ways. You could say, it goes through all of these verses talking about all of these mundane, secular things she does. You could get to the end of that to verse 30 and say, oh, in addition, she fears God. So that the fear of God is like the capstone of her life. Or you could say, that when you get to verse 30, you're not seeing the capstone, an addition to her life, her religious life, being added to her secular life. You could say that verse 30 is showing us the secret, the center of her life. You could say that that is the reason for her vocational excellence. That at the center of her mundane duties of being a wife and a mother, there is this deep humble awareness of God's intimate presence, not in general, but in her particular duties as a wife and mom. Again, going back to Luther, he said it this way. 
God milks the cows with the hands of the milkmaid. Now that's a fascinating thing he said because the word with can play out in one of two ways. It could be that the way God accomplishes the milking of the cows is he sends a milkmaid. And it's true on that level. We're an extension. But it also works in another way that God's hands are wrapped around her hands simultaneously milking the cow. Whatever your job, no matter how mundane, crunching numbers, preparing a 9,000th Bible study, listening to a very boring lecture on history, whatever your job, no matter how mundane and unappreciated, if you want to apply your faith to your vocation, you have got to learn how to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work. You've got to learn to recognize that God is there. His angel is over your shoulder, Tom, when you're looking at a spreadsheet and you can't see your way through the boredom. The angel of the Lord is over your shoulder and he's saying, go, go. Navla, when you're a student, and it's midnight and you're bored and you're studying and you can't go on. The angel of the Lord is over your shoulder and he's saying, go, go. This is your worship. This is your service to God. So on Tuesday, when you're sitting in English class and your teacher is driving you bonkers, remember the angel of the Lord is over your shoulder and he's saying to Kate, Listen hard. Pay attention. This is your worship. Every bit as much as what you do on Sunday night. This is your service to God. That's the first way we apply our faith to our work. Now the second way is this. We've got to learn to work for shalom. Shalom. It's a Hebrew word. It comes out of the Old Testament. And it draws together three concepts. The concept of peace and justice and delight. Shalom, it's the idea of flourishing and prospering. It's the idea of enjoying your life before God, enjoying your life with others, and enjoying your life in God's creation. It's, it's a picture of of luxuriant thriving. One theologian puts it this way. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's where God has taken this whole thing. That's where it's going to end up. Look with me at this incredible passage that Robert read to us. Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28, one of my absolute favorite verses of Scripture. Isaiah 28, verse 23 through 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Now this is God talking. Does the one, the farmer, does he who plows by sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, soak cumin, and put 
in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emir as the border? Now, this is God talking in an agricultural setting to a group of Middle Eastern peasant farmers. And he's asking them questions that have to do with common Middle Eastern agriculture. How does a farmer know to do what he does? For that matter, how does a farmer in Kentucky know how to plant, when to plant, what to plant? Well, it's the same whether you're in Kentucky or the Middle East. Where do farmers learn how to farm? It's the same all over the world. Farmers learn to farm from other farmers. From his dad and his granddad or his neighbor or a farmer a long time ago that wrote an almanac. Farming knowledge is culturally accumulated. You understand what I'm saying? We discover what works best here in Alabama because, guess what? We couldn't eat, you know, a couple of decades ago when we did X, Y, and Z, and so we didn't do that the next year. And we start, we accumulate all this knowledge. But listen to what verse 26 says. For the farmer is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Now, Isaiah is making a profound point that can revolutionize the way you approach your job. He is saying that all true wisdom for how to do any job comes from God. Keep reading. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheeled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, no. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he doesn't crush it. This farming knowledge also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Again, God did not show up for dinner one night. Isaiah is not saying that God got all the farmers together at the co-op, right? And said, here's how you harvest dill. Here's how you harvest cumin. Put barley here in the field. Now, Isaiah knows that they had figured it out over generations. After decades and centuries of farming that land, they had discovered the best techniques. What Isaiah is saying is this. Every vocation has a proper way it's supposed to be done. And we know that with farming. And we know Isaiah is applying that to every vocation. Think of your vocation, your job, like a, a piece of wood. It's got a grain. And as a Christian, your job is to discover the grain of mothering. Or, or banking, or engineering student, or or being a, a student. Your job is to discover the way God meant for your job to play out. In other words, you've got to become an expert in your field. If God calls you to art, to medicine, to farming, you've got to master the accumulated knowledge in your profession and discern 
what if that comes from God? What if that is right? And what if that is wrong so that you can partner with God in serving your neighbor and contributing to shalom? As a worker in your field, you've got to see what is cutting against God's grain and what is cutting with God's grain. And you've got to then apply yourself to healing your industry, to bring your industry, your company, your job into line with the grain of the universe. Now, we're seeing the importance of this played out on the world stage right now. What if banking had committed themselves to this? What if banking as an international industry had committed itself to the idea that the goal of work is the gracious service of others and not self. And just like Chernobyl, banking has rules, there's a grain, and when we try to bend them or take a shortcut around them or break them, there will be a meltdown. And people will be hurt. And the same applies to parenting. In America, in the 60s, we threw out a lot of culturally accumulated wisdom about parenting. And we went through several decades of cutting against the grain. And there's a meltdown. This brings us to the third way that a Christian view of work matters for what you do tomorrow or Tuesday, Kate, when you go to school. Dorothy Sayers, she once compared work to golf. She said, when you're teeing off, if you take your eye off the ball, you're not going to make a very good drive. In the same way, if your heart is not wholly on your work, your work will not be good. And work... This is what's pretty incredible about what Sayers is saying. And work that is not good neither serves God nor the community. It only serves mammon. It only serves greed. And this shows up in all sorts of ways in our world today, mainly in mediocrity. Work that just gets by, just the minimum. Watching the clock, just here for the paycheck. If your job is a legitimate job, then mediocre work, no matter what your vocation is, is the only form of unchristian work. Let me say that again. If, if your job is a legitimate job, obviously there are some illegitimate jobs, the pornography industry, right? If your job is a legitimate job, then mediocre work, is the only form of unchristian work. Even if you're the nicest cat in the office, even if you've got the most Christian morals, and you're not sleeping around, and you're not stealing, and you're not lying, and you're not backstabbing, if your work as a student is mediocre, it's not Christian. And this is the third way that we can apply a Christian theology to work. And it's this. You've got to learn to see that your first duty when you're on the job is to your work. That's what Christianity teaches us. Your first duty on the job is not trying to convert your office mates. 
Your first duty is to your work. Now, this is straight out of Proverbs 31 and Isaiah 28 and Genesis chapter 1 through 2. Sayers, she gives this incredibly witty illustration. She says, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter like Stephen is usually confined to don't get drunk and show up at church on Sunday. Sayer says, what the church needs to tell a carpenter is that the very first demand Christianity makes of you as a carpenter is to make a good table. By all means, go to church and don't get drunk. But what use is all of that if in the very center of your life and occupation you're insulting God by bad carpentry? And then with a, a wonderfully deep reading of Scripture... Sayers writes, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's workshop in Nazareth. If they did, would anybody have ever believed they were made by the same hands that made the heavens and the earth? What I'm saying is that good morals will never compensate for bad parenting or bad banking or bad architecting or bad ministering, or being a bad student. Good morals, good character, will never baptize your work. By all means, we should have good character, okay? I'm not saying that. Now, if that was all she wrote, Sayers, I would say it was brilliant, but then she turns the corner and says something to the church, She writes, the church, in her buildings and in her art and her music, in her hymns and prayers, in her sermons and the little books of devotion that we sell in our Christian bookstores, the church tolerates good intentions and excuses ugly, pretentious, tawdry, twaddling, insincere, and insipid work that is so bad, it shocks and horrifies any decent craftsman. And why? Why does the church do this? Why do we build ugly buildings? Because we have lost all sense of the fact that the living and eternal truth of God is expressed in work only so far as it is true to itself, to its standards, to its own techniques. The church has forgotten that a secular vocation is a sacred vocation. We've forgotten, Dorothy Sayers wrote, that a building must be good architecture before it can ever be a good church. That a painting must be well painted before it can ever be a sacred picture. And that work must be good work before it can ever call itself God's work. Now all of this is to say that the only Christian work, the only Christian music, the only Christian art, the only Christian surgery, the only Christian teaching, the only Christian mothering, the only Christian work is good work done well. That's the only Christian work there is. Now, 
when you go to work tomorrow, be a Christian. Learn to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work. Learn to work for shalom through your job. Learn to figure out the connection between your job and community and our society ticking along in a flourishing kind of way. And learn to see that at your job, your first duty is to your work, to do an excellent job. And when we get good at those three practices, whether we're students or teachers or or fathers or whatever we are, when we get good at those three practices, our working life will be revolutionized. I hope that you can begin to get a sense of how the Christian approach to work is exactly what Birmingham needs. This is exactly what it's going to take to renew the culture of this city. This is exactly what has to happen in the political sphere and the civic sphere and and in the educational system and the list goes on and on. Do you see how the Christian view of work, if we can, if just the professing Christians in this town will apply their faith to their work, not to themselves, but to their work. Do you see how this will renew our town? That, that's why faith and work is one of the five fundamental ministry fronts of all things new. Faith and work is the cultural renewal arm of this church. Let's pray.